Well, if we haven't met, my name is Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here of the City Church. We're honored that you're joining us today. We are finishing out our Tombstone series today. In this series, we've been talking about living in light of that day, one day when we will have a tombstone over our bodies, over our graves. And we've talked about how we want people to be able to say things about us that we want them to say. And so I've asked like my family and friends, staff, you know, what are some of the things you would say about me, you know, when I'm gone? And of course, asking my staff and my brothers and my friends, they had nothing but funny things to say. And so I feel like uh, my funeral will be just a comedy hour of um, roasting me and making fun of me. So, so don't miss it. Uh, but here's what one of my brothers said. He said, here lies, here's what I'll say. He said, here lies Clayton Walker, lover of tight shirts and tight pants. I don't know, you know, infamous one word text responder, such as K, sure, wow, cool, or yeah. I, I don't know why, like I'm expected to respond with an equally long paragraph text when I can just say K, when K is sufficient, I don't understand what the problem with that is, but, but I've been made fun of that for years that I respond with one word responses. My brother Travis said he will be known as a lover of the gym and protein shakes and that he loves to bite his cheek. I don't know if you do that. I pull my cheek, I'm always like, you know, kind of pull my cheek over like that and I kind of chew on the side of it. I guess I do that and I do it enough to where people notice it, obviously. And he said uh, he loves to clear his throat aggressively. I guess I'm an aggressive throat clearer, okay? I didn't, I didn't know that, but, but that's what my brother said. Well, you know, Solomon, the scripture says, was one of the wisest men to ever live. In Ecclesiastes 7 verse 4, here's what Solomon had to say about death. He said, a wise person thinks a lot about death. A wise person thinks a lot about death, not just a little bit, but a lot. And so that's the point of this series. We're talking about death and what we want to be said about us after we die. A wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool only thinks about having a good time. A fool doesn't live as if this life, as the scripture says, is a mist. It appears one day and it's gone the next and that we aren't guaranteed tomorrow. A fool just lives it up today without ever considering, without ever thinking that there will be a day that I will die and there will be a tombstone above my body, above my grave. When you die, chances are someone like me or me will in 24, 48 hours after your death be meeting with your family and your closest friends. And they will be asking them questions like, hey, how, what did this person mean to you? And tell me some stories about them. What do you want said about them at his funeral, at her funeral? And they'll ask your family, your closest friends, those kinds of questions. But probably a more important question is right now for you to consider what do you want said about you at your funeral? What do you want written about you on your tombstone? If, if there was three short, simple, to the point things that you would want said about you on your tombstone, what would those three things be? And now let me ask you this, an equally important question. Are you making decisions today that reinforce what you want said about you at your funeral or on your tombstone? Or is there a gap? Is there a gap between what you want said about you and what will actually be said about you? Is there a gap between what you want written on your tombstone and what will actually be put on your tombstone? Is there a gap? Is there a gap between what you want said and your daily decisions that you're making today? In this series, we're working backwards 
from our tombstone to make sure what we want said about us is actually said about us. We're going to close the gap. In this series, I'm talking about the three things I want written on my tombstone and why I think they should be the things you want said about you as well. And so we're calling these three things, the three stepping stones to your tombstone. And so the first week, the first stepping stone, the first thing I want written about me in my tombstone, I said, was that he loved Jesus. The second stepping stone, second thing I want written about me in my tombstone was that he loved his bride. And we call these things the stepping stones because we've got to step on these things. We've got to hit these things in this life if they're going to be said about us, if they're going to be written about us on our tombstone. And so here's the third stepping stone. The third thing, <coughs> excuse me, that I want written about me on my tombstone is he loved the bride. Now that's a big difference from last week because I said I want it to be said about me that he loved his bride. This week, here's the third one, third stepping stone, he loved the bride. So the question is, who's the bride? Well, I'll get to that here in just a second, but I want to give you two reasons why I want it to be said about me that he loved the bride, like capital T, capital B bride, like the bride, two reasons. So now's a great time. If you're not already to follow along with us in our app, the verses are there. Uh, the points are there. You can fill in the blank, just click message notes in our app. And if you don't have our app, you can download that in your app store, the City Church Lubbock. Then click message notes and you can follow along with us. And again, the verses, the points will be there. You fill in the blank and you can email yourself your notes when you're done. It's a great way to stay engaged and participate in what we're doing today. All right. So two reasons I want it to be said about me that he loved the bride. Number one, why? Well, number one is because the groom loves his bride. The groom loves his bride. So who are we talking about here? Well, all throughout the gospels, Jesus would tell stories. They're called parables. They're illustrations where he explains truths about the kingdom of God. And in these parables, Jesus often talks about a groom and a bride. And the groom is himself and the bride are his followers. They are those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. So the bride in the New Testament is the church. The church is called the bride of Christ all throughout the New Testament. I'm going to show you here in just a second. But the church are those who have trusted in Jesus. They've given their lives to Jesus. They have acknowledged, they've quit thinking, they've abandoned the idea that they could ever be good enough in order to go to heaven when they die because they always fall short of God's standard to have a relationship with him and to go to heaven when they die. So the bride, the church, followers of Jesus have confessed that they have sinned and they will never be good enough to be right with God. And not only that, they have confessed and they realize there's a fine for breaking God's law. Eternity separated from God in a place called hell, but they acknowledge and confess that God loves them so much that Jesus, God's son, came and died on the cross, paid for their sins on the cross, paid their fine, for their sins. And so they've given their lives to Jesus. And the scripture says those who give their lives to Jesus, their sin is completely forgiven past, present, and future. They're made righteous. They're in a right standing with God. And they can know for sure that when they die, they're going to heaven. The church, the bride of Christ are those that have given their lives to Jesus. And then in Ephesians one, it says they've received the Holy spirit living and dwelling inside of them. This is God's presence that indwells the life of every believer in Jesus. 
the church, the bride of Christ, are those that have given their lives to Jesus and trusted in him. And so the scripture says, then now they've been born again. You were born the first time physically into your family, but when you're born again through your faith in Jesus, you're born again into a spiritual family. And that spiritual family is the church. And all throughout the New Testament, this church is referred to as the bride of Christ. So let me show you what I'm talking about. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse two, Paul says to the church at Corinth, I've promised you, 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 you Corinthian believers, I've promised you as a pure bride to the one husband, Jesus Christ, Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. And Paul says, I've promised you like a bride, like a dad who has promised his daughter to this husband. I've promised you as a bride to the one husband, your one husband, Jesus Christ. And Paul's referring to this day, this day that's coming when the groom is going to return for his bride to a fully and officially like consummate this relationship and they will be together forever. And in Revelation, we see the consummation happen. We see the groom return for his bride. And then John sees this image, this picture in heaven of what's happening right before this day, right before Jesus comes back for for the groom returns for his bride and all of heaven is is worshiping and they, they, they erupt. And here's what happens. Here's what they say in Revelation chapter 19, verse seven, let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him, to Jesus for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb. That's Jesus. The lamb is Jesus for the wedding feast of the lamb and his bride has prepared herself. The time has come. Jesus, the groom has gone. He's gotten his bride. And now it's time for the party. It's time for the reception. The wedding has happened. Now it's time for the reception, the party. You see, you may not have known this or ever realized this, but every reception, wedding reception you go to is just a, a small glimpse. It's just a picture of a spiritual heavenly reception that's going to happen one day after Jesus comes back, after groom comes back for his bride and we are together with him forever, there will be a party, a celebration. And the scripture calls it the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the lamb. When the groom and the lamb are united together forever in all its fullness. And then Paul says this in Ephesians chapter five about this relationship between Christ and his church, the groom and his, his bride. Here's how the relationship works. Ephesians chapter five, verse 25 to 32 for husbands. This means love your wives. Watch this just as Christ loved the church. So we talked some about this last week about husbands loving their wives, like Christ loved the church. This is the image. This is the picture that Paul gives to help us understand the way a marriage should work between a husband and wife, but he also shows us that it's based on, that relationship between a husband and wife is based on the groom and the bride and their relationship and how that relationship works and and, and functions. And so Paul says, he, Jesus, the groom, gave up his life for her, his bride. That's how the relationship works. The groom, gave up his life for the bride. Same thing is true in a marriage relationship. We talked about that last week. The groom, the husband gives up his life. He lives with a self-sacrificial kind of love in spite of his bride's performance. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean. 
washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, Paul says, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. Christ cares for his church, his bride. And we are members of his body. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are a member of the body of Christ, the church, the, the bride of Christ. It's who you are now. You've been born again into a spiritual family. And so you're a member, you're a part of the church, the capital C church, the bride of Christ. And as the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but watch this, Paul says, but it's an illustration. It's a picture of the way Christ and the church, his bride are one. Two become one. They're joined together. They're united together. That's what happens in a marriage relationship. And Paul says, this is a picture this joining together, this union of two becoming one. It's an illustration. It's a picture of Christ and his church. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Jesus, the groom loves his church, the bride, and he proved it by giving himself up for her. Now, was she worthy? Was the bride worthy of this self-sacrificial love that the groom displayed? No, she wasn't. She wasn't worthy of it. She didn't deserve it. See, the scripture makes it clear, Romans 5 and other places, that before you give your life to Jesus, you're an enemy of God. Ephesians 2 says it like this. You're following your master, the devil, to hell. You're a rebel against God. You're not right with God. But God loves us so much, Romans 5, 8 says, that while we were yet sinners, even though we were his enemies, he loved us so much that he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to die for us anyways, to give up his life for us, to die in our place for our sin on the cross. That's how much God loves you. You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Grace is receiving what you did not earn, what you do not deserve. And God loved you in spite of your performance. And God loves his bride in spite of her performance. He was willing to die for her, to lay himself down for her unconditionally. It means it wasn't conditioned upon performance. And so Jesus loves his church, his bride, and he proved it by giving himself up for her, even when she didn't deserve it. But those who place their faith in Jesus become members of his body. They're a part of the church. They're the bride of Christ. And because of their faith in Jesus, their sin is forgiven. And Paul says it like this in Ephesians 5. Now the bride is holy and blameless, without spot, wrinkle, or any other blemish. You are holy and without fault because of what Jesus has done for you. And so is the bride. Our legal standing before God, when you give your life to Jesus, changes from being an enemy of God, condemned to hell, guilty of your sin, your legal standing changes when you give your life to Jesus. Your sin is forgiven. You're made right with God. And now your legal standing before God is righteous, holy, blameless, without fault, without 
blemish because as the song we just sang said, you are now hid with Christ. You're hidden in Christ. And so when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. You're holy and blameless and nothing that you could ever do could change that because the scripture says in Hebrews, Christ died once and for all. Your sin, past, present, and future. And so when we sin, the relationship's affected, the intimacy, the closeness is affected, but my legal standing does not change because Christ has paid for my sin. Once and for all, it's finished. And so that's why Paul says in Ephesians 5, the bride, Jesus makes his bride holy and blameless and without a single fault. But that wasn't the case before you gave your life to Jesus. You didn't earn this self-sacrificial kind of love. So check this out. Jesus, in spite of the bride's performance, loves her, pursues her, dies for her, in spite of her flaws, in spite of her shortcomings, in spite of his bride, the church, missing it over and over and over again. In spite of his bride, the church, getting it wrong over and over and over again. In spite of his bride hurting him over and over and over again, Jesus still loves and pursues and cares for his bride and died for her anyways. Jesus, the groom, loves his bride. And there's even more, actually. Like it gets even harder to comprehend. And if you've been burned by the church before, it's about to get a lot more difficult for you. Because Jesus's affection for the church goes so far beyond just affection and grace for the past. It turns into something so much deeper. And so if you've been burned by the church, I know this is probably going to be hard for you to hear. And we'll talk about that here in just a second. But it's actually, it's about to get so much more difficult for those of us who've been burned by the church. Because the second reason I want it said about me that he loved the bride. The second reason why is because the groom believes in his bride. The groom loves his bride and cares for it, but the groom believes in his bride. In Matthew chapter 16, we see the first occurrence of the word church or where we get the word church from. In Matthew 16, Jesus says this in response to Peter. Peter has just said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah. He makes this incredible confession of who he believes Jesus to be. And then Jesus says this to Peter, right after Peter says that, he says, now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. There it is. Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus says, I believe in my church, I'm gonna build my church and my church is going to succeed. My church is going to win and all the powers of hell will not conquer my church. The groom believes in his bride. And so if you're like me, you're wondering what's the rock then? Because Jesus says on this rock, I'm going to build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. 
So what's the rock then? Jesus, you're, you're believing, you're, you're confessing your belief in your bride, your belief in your church that you're going to build, but you're going to build it on the rock. And so the rock, this rock must have something to do with your belief in your bride, with your belief in the church. So what is the rock? Well, scholars have told us at least three different things it could be. So let me share those with you. The, the first thing could be that the rock, this rock is Peter's confession that came right before this, where Peter said, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God, you're the Messiah, you're the son of God, you're God in the flesh. P Peter was confessing his belief, his trust in Jesus. And so some scholars have said this rock is Peter's confession of who he believes Jesus to be. Others have said, no, it's Jesus himself. Jesus is actually, when he's referring to this rock, he's referring to himself. And so he's saying that the church is going to be built on me. And certainly uh, that is the case as Jesus is called the chief cornerstone, as Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the one to, to build my church. And so scholars have said that that could be what Jesus is referring. He's referring to himself. But then there's a third interpretation of this. And the third interpretation of this rock, and this is one of the most highly debated verses in all of the scripture. It's one of the most studied verses in all of the scripture over church history because of this next third reason that will blow you away. It blows me away that the rock is actually Peter. It's Peter himself. And while I would say it's all three, it's Peter's confession, surely. This, this confession of faith that Jesus is Lord. Obviously the church is built on Jesus. He's the chief cornerstone. The problem is, is in the Greek, which is what the new Testament was written in the grammar in the Greek, the syntax in the Greek language points 100% to Peter. And so while the other two statements are and answers are obviously true, primarily in this verse, Jesus is saying the rock is Peter. Now, if you're a Protestant like me, that might bother you a little bit and it bothers me a little bit. But there is no doubt that the Greek points to Peter. It's saying that Peter, Jesus is saying, Peter is the rock upon whom he's gonna build his church and all the powers of hell will not Conquered. And the reason that bothers people like me, Protestants like me, instead of a Roman Catholic, is because Protestants have tried to get away from the Roman Catholic understanding of this verse that Jesus is talking about Peter here. Because Protestants will say, and I agree, that Roman Catholics have wrongly interpreted this verse and they have taken it too far to say that Peter has some sort of super ultimate authority over the Christian faith and over all of the disciples and over the church. And we don't believe that's true. I don't. But you cannot escape that Jesus is saying, Peter is the rock on whom he will build his church. You can't escape that. The, the grammar points to that. And so while I do not believe Peter has some sort of ultimate authority that's passed down to the Pope, and that's where we get the, the Roman Catholics get the, Pope, the papacy from, is this spiritual ultimate authority that's passed down from Peter to the next Pope, to the next Pope, to the next Pope as the leader of the church. I, I, I do not believe that. I think that's a wrong interpretation. You, you cannot, and I think it goes way too far, you can't escape this idea that Peter is the rock. 
The reason I think, one of the many reasons I think they have taken it too far is in Acts chapter 15, when there's a decision to be made at the first council, the first Jerusalem council, they come together and they make a decision together. They do not go to Peter and say, hey, Peter, we've got a problem. We've got a question here. We need you to answer this for us and tell us what God thinks. Now, Peter is certainly one of the elders in the group that are considering this, but they make a decision together. And they actually said, we made this decision based upon what seems good to us, not what seemed good to Peter, what seems good to us. And so I think this ultimate authority that was put on Peter and then believed to be passed down from one pope to the next is a, is a wrong interpretation and it goes way too far, taking this verse way too far. However, however, as we do sometimes and as Protestants have done with some things, we can take things too far in our reactions against things that we find are dangerous. And we can throw the baby out with the bathwater, for lack of a better word. And I think Protestants have done that. We've thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And one of the reasons that I think we've done that is because when we look at Peter, we say, Peter, well, Peter was so messed up, right? I mean, this is the guy who would deny Jesus three times that he even knew him. I mean, Peter was so messed up. In fact, a couple verses later, when Jesus says, hey, I'm going to the cross, Peter says, no, it will never be. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That happens right after this verse we just read. Get behind me, Satan. So we look at the life of Peter and we're like, Peter got it wrong over and over and over again. So why is Jesus saying Peter is the rock upon whom he's going to build his church? Here's why I think that. I think this rock that Jesus is referring to in Peter is everything that Peter is at this moment. It refers to him being this courageous confessor of who Jesus is when he steps forward. It refers to him being this representative spokesman for the disciples as the recipient of revelation from God, as the first individual to make a public confession of Christ, as the one who would lead the disciples forward in faith. It's upon this Peter that Jesus is saying he's going to build his church. And if Peter functions, and as long as he's functioning in this way, he is the rock. But when he doesn't function in this capacity, he becomes a stumbling block. He goes from the rock to the stumbling block. As most of us find to be true in our lives, right? We, we have moments of great faith and then, and then we have moments where we get it completely wrong. Just like Peter. Just like Peter. The rock <laughs> moments later becomes a stumbling block and Jesus has to say, get behind me rock. And then denying that he even knows Jesus, the rock who would step forward in acts two and preach gospel with power and thousands of people give their lives to Jesus and the rock who is the, one of the leaders in the formation and the birth of the church and acts and but then when Paul comes on the scene and becomes this powerful evangelist, Paul says at one point he had to confront Peter to his face and call him out on his hypocrisy. 
So a rock that can also be a stumbling block. And man, I, I don't know if there's any more accurate example and picture of my Christian life. Moments of great faith and moments of great failure. Jesus knew, listen to me, Jesus knew who Peter was and he knew who Peter would be. He knew that he would tell Peter he's the rock and moments later would be telling him to get behind him because he was acting like Satan, not with the things of God in mind, but with the things of men on his mind. He, he, he knew that he was going to tell him, hey, you're the rock and I'm gonna build my church on you and you're gonna be part of the foundation of my church and you're gonna be a leader in the church and, and the gates of hell are not gonna, are not gonna come against it and we'll, not, we'll never conquer it. But, but, but Peter, I know you're going to deny me. You're gonna deny that you even know me. So Jesus knew that Peter would mess up, that he wouldn't be perfect, that he would fail, that he would miss it, he wouldn't get it right, but it didn't prevent Jesus from making him a leader of his church, from using him, from speaking through them. And so here's what you've got to understand. And here's the, the great news that I want you to see this morning is that God uses messed up people and churches for his purposes. He uses messed up pastors for his purposes. He uses messed up people, messed up churches for his purposes. All lowercase c churches that you attend or that you have gone to are going to hurt you. They're going to burn you. We will too. <laughs> I'm just going to call it right now. Why? Because it's in this place and it's in places like this where you find the highest concentration of people who are saying, I am so messed up, evil and wicked. I need a savior to come and rescue me from my sin. I'm sick and I need a, a doctor. There's a pretty high concentration of people like that right here, right now. And so chances are those messed up people who are sick and need a doctor are going to hurt you. Chances are I'm going to get it wrong sometime. I'm going to hurt you. Chances are you're going to get overlooked. Chances are someone's going to hurt your feelings. Someone's not going to say something in the right way. I'm promising it. I'm calling it right now. Why? Because we are messed up people. We are broken. We are sinful. And we've actually confessed it and have said, I need a doctor to come and heal me because I am so sick and I can't do it on my own. I can't do it for myself. All churches are messed up because they're all filled with broken, messed up people. And so I promise you, if it hasn't happened to you yet here, it will. Because I'm a messed up pastor. But I thank God for his grace and his mercy that he chooses to use messed up Peters, messed up people, messed up pastors, and messed up churches who don't always get it right. And here's, here's what's wild is the groom believes so much in his bride, watch this, that the church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. The church is God's plan A and there is no plan B. Jesus said, my church, I'm gonna build it and the powers of hell will not conquer it. In other words, here's what Jesus is saying. My church, my plan A is going to win the day. It's going to succeed and so there's no need for a plan B. There will never be a plan B. The church, my bride is my plan A and my plan A, my bride is going to win. That's how much the groom believes in his bride. 
But this is the ideal, right? This is the design. We live in the real. And the real is, the reality is, is that many of us have been burned by the church. We've been hurt. And if that's you, I have two things I want to share with you. If you've been burned by the church, if you've been hurt by the church, here's the, here's the first thing. The first thing I want you to know is that you're not alone. You're, you're not alone. Jesus was burned by the church as well. And in fact, it never stopped. When, you, when you're in the book of Revelation, uh, the first part of the book of Revelation, that last book in our New Testament, Jesus is just lighting up one church after the next, telling all the things he's got problems with them about. I mean, he's just lighting them up and he is just giving each one of these churches the business. And you, if you've ever been burned by the church, you can go read it and you're like, get them, Jesus, get them, get those bad church people, right? I mean, he is just lighting one church up after the next saying, this is the problems I got with you. These are the problems I've got with you. These are the problems I got with you. Repent, repent, repent. You're missing it. You're missing it. You're missing it. Jesus was burned by the church and it never stops. And you would think if that's the way that the church works and if we continually get it wrong, you would think that Jesus would come up with a plan B, but he hasn't. And he told us he won't because his plan A, the church will win. You're not alone. Paul in most of his letters, which is half of our new Testament spends most of his letters correcting all the bad things that are happening in these churches that he planted and helped start him. He's telling them one thing after the next, hey, you got this wrong, this isn't right, that was a bad decision, this is wrong, this is sin, you need to repent here. I mean, most of his letters are correcting all the places the bride of Christ, the church, is getting it wrong and where they are missing it. And you would think Paul would throw up his hands, he'd be done with the church. But he continues to pastor them. He continues to spend time with them and visit them and write letters to them. He never gave up on the church. He never gave up on the bride in spite of being burned and hurt by the churches, in spite of being abandoned and even alone in prison sometimes for his faith in Christ and not being cared for in the ways that he should have been cared for. Paul continued to love and to serve the church. you've been burned by the church, you're not alone. So have I. I've been ministry for nearly 20 years now. Church pastors and church people have burned me, have hurt me, have disillusioned me, have brought me a lot of pain, have brought me anxiety attacks, breakdowns, loss, tears. At the hands of pastors and church people. I've been burned over and over and over again by the church. You're not alone. But what happens a lot of times when we're burned by a church or by a person, we, we run from that person or we run from that church. We abandon the church. And if you've done that, then here, here's the, the second thing I wanna tell you is that you are alone. If you've run from the church, you've run from the bride, then you are alone. And isolation is dangerous. Isolation results in lost perspective. 
means you have no objective voices calling you towards a balance. And so your highs tend to be higher. Your lows tend to be lower. Your point of view becomes clouded and things seem to tend, uh, tend to seem worse or better than they actually are. Isolation results in a lost perspective. Isolation results in being attacked. Sheep are never attacked in a herd. They're only attacked when they get away from the pack, when they get isolated from the pack. And the Bible says that our enemy, the devil, is like a a roaring lion looking for people to devour, looking for sheep to take out. And the lion always takes out the sheep that's isolated, that's away from the pack. Isolation results in spiritual immaturity because spiritual growth takes place in the context of a community of faith. The New Testament makes that clear. Isolation can result in selfishness where you begin to think that Christianity or the church is all about you. Isolation can result in bitterness where you become angry and bitter towards the church and and that can lead to abandoning the church or even bashing the church. But if you've begun to bash the church, here's what you need to understand. Bashing the church, bashing the church is bashing the bride. Listen, if you came up to me and you say, hey, Clayton, man, I I love you. I think you're great. Like we can be friends, uh, but I, I don't like your wife. And here's all the problems I've got with your wife you and I are going to have problems. (laughs) That's just all there is to it. Like you don't get to come up to me and say, Clayton, I love you, but I hate your wife. And and she's this and she's that. And she's like, if you did that, you and I are going to have problems. And so now imagine telling an infinitely holy and powerful and eternal groom, you hate his bride or bashing his bride. That's a dangerous place to be in. You don't tell a groom who loves his bride, who believes in his bride, all the things you hate about her. You don't bash his bride. Then you're going to be in trouble with the groom. Scripture tells us that Jesus loves and believes in his bride. Hebrews chapter two, verse 11 says that Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, his spiritual family. Hebrews 11 verse six says that God is not ashamed to be called our God. In Acts chapter five, there's a Pharisee, a very wise Pharisee that tells the rest of the Sanhedrin who's wanting to put the disciples in prison because they won't stop preaching about Jesus. And this wise Pharisee tells the rest of the Sanhedrin, who is just a a spiritual counsel for, for the Jews. He tells them, hey, listen, stop opposing them. Why? And he told the Sanhedrin because the longer you oppose them, you're just gonna find yourself fighting against God. By opposing them, by opposing the bride, you're just gonna find yourself fighting against and opposing God himself. Later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter nine, when Jesus reveals himself to Paul, who's going to persecute more Christians, right? He's going to throw more Christians in jail because they won't stop talking about Jesus. And Jesus appears to Paul and he says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting those people? Is that what he said? No, that's not what he said. He he doesn't even show up and say, Paul, why are you persecuting those Christians? Why are you persecuting that church 
That's, that's not what Jesus says to Paul. Jesus shows up to Paul and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Bashing my bride, persecuting my bride, opposing my bride, you're, you're persecuting me. What? <laughs> you, you, you mean Paul was right in Ephesians chapter five, Christ and his church are one? Why are you persecuting me? Jesus is saying, you persecute my church, you bash my bride, it's like you're persecuting, bashing me, God himself. That's a dangerous place to be if you find yourself bashing the church. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter four, Colossians chapter two, he told these Christians at these churches, he said, hey, you've gotta make allowance for each other's faults and forgive one another in the same way that you've been forgiven. It's almost like Paul knew that these churches and these church people were going to hurt each other. And so he said, you gotta make allowance for each other's faults. And you're gonna have to forgive each other in the same way God has forgiven you. Have you ever heard the statement? It's like the pot calling the kettle black. What do we mean when we say that? We're telling someone, hey, you're doing exactly what you're accusing this person of doing. And when you don't allow for the faults in the church and you don't forgive in the same way that you've been forgiven, it's like a pot calling a kettle black. You're doing exactly what you're accusing the church of doing to you. We're to make allowance for each other's faults. We're to forgive with the same grace that we've been forgiven. Jesus loved and believed in the ones who burned him and who he knew would burn him. I've been burned by the church. And at the same time, I love it. And I've given my life to it. It's scarred me. It's hurt me. But I would die for it. Why? Because Jesus does. And Jesus lives in me. And if you're a follower of Jesus, then Jesus lives in you too. And so there's this innate love for the church. In spite of the way you've been treated by it. In spite of the way you've been burned by it. You've got a love for the church. Because Christ lives in you. And Christ and his church are one. And so I go to church, I serve the church, I give to the church because Jesus loves and believes in his church, his bride, and Jesus lives in me. And Jesus said, I and the bride, the bride and me are one. In this series, we've said this, this has been our big idea for the whole series, that if it won't matter when I'm dead, I won't let it master me while I'm alive. And so that that doesn't mean there aren't gonna be some things that we do in this life that are fun. They're things that aren't wrong in and of themselves. But what it does mean is I don't wanna be mastered or dominated by. I don't want my life to be ruled by things that won't matter when I'm dead. 
I want my life to be ruled by, mastered by, dominated by things that are going to matter when I'm dead. I want to live a life that makes sense in light of eternity. And so that means giving myself to God's plan A, his church. It means living for his church. And so as for me and my house, we will love, we will believe in, we will be devoted to the church, to the bride of Christ. Over the last few weeks, I told you about a man named Mark Langford who attended our church and passed away a little over a month ago. And I've told you a little bit about him each week. But one of the things I noticed about Mark was that he loved being at church. I described it as a kid on Christmas morning every time he was here. Why? Because he loved, his face lit up because he got to be here and worship with other believers and and hear God's word and and pray together with other believers. He loved being here. It was like a kid on Christmas morning. And that's how much his face lit up when he was here. He loved being here. Why? Not because of some sort of religious attendance. No, no, no. He loved the church, but he had been burned by the church too. He'd been burned, but he came back because Christ lived in him. He loved and he believed in the church because the groom loves his bride and the groom believes in his bride. What needs to change in your life so that it can be said about you? He loved, she loved the bride. Would you pray with me? God, I I pray that you would give us the grace. You would fill our hearts with grace, God, that we might make allowance for each other's faults, that we would forgive each other with the same forgiveness that was shown to us. And God, I pray that you would stir our hearts in this moment for your bride, the church, that we would love the church and believe in the church, the bride, in the same way that you do. And so we would devote ourselves to your bride. And we thank you, God, that you are building your church and the powers of hell will never conquer it. And so God, we pray that by your grace, you would use us and you would build us as a part of that bride, that that church that was born over 2000 years ago that we belong to. God, would you build us? Would you use us in spite of our flaws, in spite of our weaknesses? God, would you use us and build your church for your name, for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name.